thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. The reading is from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Hello, my, my name is Nick Mackison, and I was a classmate of your minister, Peter, at ETS. And despite the fact that he knows me relatively well, he still thought it worth inviting me to provide a lecture for you all there in Burghead. So I want to thank you all for this opportunity to lead a study in God's Word. Now, when I saw the subject matter for this session, the doctrine of sin, I began to wonder if it's precisely because Peter knows me relatively well that he asked me to bring some teaching on it. Because uh, as Peter knows, I'm a bit of an expert in sin uh, and I've been a long term practitioner of the doctrine. Um, so I'm pretty experienced with sin and, and I'm pretty good at it, to be honest. But however, you know, if the, if the saying is true that misery loves company, then this explains why I spend so much time with other sinners in an institution called Sinners Anonymous. Now that is just my own smart aleck name for, for the church. And someone might say to me at, the, at this point, you know, this all sounds quite negative, you know, wouldn't it be better during this current global crisis to focus on something positive like the Trinity or, or the doctrines of grace or whatever? But I would argue that this type of response reflects a deep naivety as to the problem that we face. After all, it would be folly to try and focus on the wallpaper when we have an elephant in the room. If we want rid of the elephant, we need to understand what it will take to remove it. And so accordingly, one of the first steps in the 12-step programme 
for recovery from alcoholism is the following recognition, that we are powerless over alcohol. And similarly, for those of us who belong to Sinners Anonymous, the fact that we are sinners and powerless in the presence of sin is our first step towards recovery. You see, knowing sin and its power uh, is a fundamental reality that informs the nature of the life that we have in Christ. As Donald MacLeod put it in his book, A Faith to Live By, he says this, religion begins with a sense of sin because it is in conviction of sin that all perception of God's word and of the glory of Christ have their origin. That being said then, a study of sin should provide great benefit for us as we seek to grow in our knowledge of God and enjoy the life that he offers us in Christ. Now I've mentioned Donald MacLeod's book, A Faith to Live By, and much of what follows is built on the insights of that book, and I hope that they prove helpful and fruitful for us. And although time is limited, um, we'll do what we can to, to be as expansive as possible. And we'll examine the doctrine of sin under three headings. And the first of which is sin as privation. Sin as privation. Now, privation is, is just a fancy word, uh, meaning a state of lack, whether that is a lack of food or a lack of clothing or finance or whatever. Uh, and the way that scripture describes sin reveals to us that this kind of concept, this notion of privation is part of sin's essential nature. Sin is something that takes away. It's something that brings lack. Sin is a negation. And we see this from four of the words that are used to describe sin in the New Testament itself. And I'm going to give you the Greek terms and then the translation of these terms to help us. So the first and notable word used in the New Testament is hamartia, which means specifically a falling short of some kind of a target. And Romans 3.23 uses this word. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All hamartia. The target here is God's glory. And you might remember from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a definition for, for what it means to glorify God. It's framed in terms of our enjoying God forever. And sin, hamartia, it's a falling short of this. It's a missing the mark on this. It's lurching into other forms of enjoyment and other forms of fulfilment. So hamartia then would be the, the first word. Secondly, then, we have the word adikia, which can be translated either iniquity or unrighteousness. And the basic idea here is that God has given us a norm, a kind of straight edge against which we measure ourselves. And we find most of the time that our lives are crooked relative to this straight edge, that we have breached the norm. Uh, Romans 1 verse 18 speaks of adikia, of unrighteousness. 
And it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, we have not done what is right. We have not rendered to God what belongs to him, given him what is due to him. So that's the second word, adikia, unrighteousness. Uh, the third term is paraptoma, which means transgression. And the idea here is of a path. You know, God's given us a way to walk in. You see this throughout the Old Testament, uh, where the righteous man is the man who doesn't walk on the path that sinners walk or stand in the way that sinners stand. But his delight is on the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. And we see this idea of a road uh, throughout scripture upon which we should walk. Isaiah 30, 21, where the Lord says through the prophet, this is the way, walk ye in it. But we fail to walk in the way. We've not walked the, the narrow path that leads to life. We've transgressed. We've walked off of it onto the broad and easy way that leads to destruction. We've wandered into dangerous territory. And so that's the three words so far. And the fourth is anomia, which means lawlessness. In 1 John 3 verse 4, we read that sin is lawlessness. And Donald McLeod notes that this verse is in many ways uh, providing us with the most important definition of sin in the New Testament. Because it speaks to God's intention in creating us. In his creation of us, uh, God intended for us to live under the law of another. And so if you were to think about the law, uh, we often think of the law as cold, hard stipulations. Um, you know, diktats uh, that we have to follow. But scripturally speaking, the law is much more than this. The law is God's description of a perfect humanity. And Jesus said that all of the law hangs on these two great commandments. The first one, to love God, heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second one, which is like it, to love your neighbour as yourself. The law is a description of perfect humanity, living in love towards God and towards the other. And so sin as lawlessness is a withdrawing from this standard. It's a negation of it. It's a failure to love. It's a failure to love God and neighbour. It's a loss of humanity. The humanity that God desires for us. And so my argument is that these four words that we've seen, hamartia, sin, eh, paraptoma, eh, and trespass, and anomia and transgression. These four different words, I was struggling to remember them all there. Uh, but the dominating concept here is one of, of a taking away of a lack of privation. It's a falling short. It's a breach of a norm. It's a wandering from the way. It's a loss of life and a loss and a breaking of the law of life. And this is an important thing uh, to grasp because it should help disabusers of any notion that the pursuit of a sinful lifestyle is capable of fulfilling us in any way. 
scripture granted is very candid that a life of sin can be alluring and hugely enjoyable but the pleasure that we get from sin according to hebrews 11 5 is something that's transitory the pleasures of sin only last for a season ultimately you see sin is a destructive impulse drawing us away from the good life in god it's like a a corrosive virus feeding on the beauty of the life that god's given us and ultimately it's what david bentley hart describes as a kind of ontological wasting disease sin is a tragedy It's a parasitic invasion into God's good creation with the intent purpose of eating away at all that is good. So that's our first point then, sin as privation. But our second head is to note sin's domination. Uh, Sin's reach is far and wide and deep. It is a dominating reality in our human existence. To the extent that it embraces every single member of the human race, such that all are guilty and all are polluted. And we're going to look at guilt and pollution separately. Uh, In Romans 5.18, we read firstly of the guilt of sin, where it tells us this. One man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. All humans are sinners by virtue of their locatedness, by virtue of their participation in Adam. Because we have uh, become his descendants, we've inherited his curse. And so it's participation in his family line that's a problem. And we stand under condemnation. Now, by... uh, just as a, out of interest um, and very briefly it's interesting to note that there's been some debate as to the precise nature of the condemnation we've inherited from Adam some uh, on the one hand hold that Adam's sin in the garden is reckoned to his descendants by imputation and so that Adam's progeny have inherited the guilt of his precise act And so if we were to think of an analogy, it would be like the father commits a crime and the children go to prison for it. Or it could be something like a head of state declaring war on another country. Uh, And this would mean that all those citizens of the country, regardless of their mental inclinations and dispositions, they are now at war with this other country. And so this idea that Adam's sin was reckoned, the act itself was imputed to his descendants, that was a development from the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it was exemplified in John Murray's book, The Imputation of Adam's Sin. It became a staple of reformed teaching. But others have been less happy with this notion. Uh, They think it's absurd to posit an idea that guilt can be inherited. And they would argue that we are legally guilty in Adam because of our own sins, not because of Adam's own sin per se. And so our problem, they argue, comes from our inheriting of a sinful nature from Adam and thus incurring guilt for ourselves 
you know, Adam ushered in the power of sin and death, and we live in that reality. And we heap up our own sins and we incur the guilt for these sins. Now, whatever one's viewpoint on this matter, the larger issue is that sin has spread to every member of the human race to the extent that all stand condemned. There is no such thing as the innocent Eskimo or the African tribesman who hasn't heard the gospel. The issue is that all have fallen away from the life of God and have thus become subject to the condemnation of this ontological wasting disease. All stand condemned. And as a result of the the legal condemnation that all stand under, there is a, a pollution involved. We've all become radically infected with the corruption of sin. Uh, Genesis 1.25 tells us that man originally was created in the image of God, which I think refers to his moral and rational likeness to the Heavenly Father. But following the sin of our first parents, this virus was introduced into the bloodlines that was passed down to, to the posterity. And there's a fascinating little verse in Genesis 5 verse 3, a post-fall, post-lapsarian verse. Um, if Adam was created in the likeness of God in Genesis 1.26, we read in Genesis 5.3 that his son Seth was born in the likeness of Adam, after Adam's image. And so the descendants of Adam bear the likeness of Adam. Uh, their rational and moral compasses polluted and spoiled to the extent that in just the next chapter, in Genesis 6, verse 3, we read that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart, that is the descendants of Adam, was only evil continually. And it's a text like this that informs the doctrine of total or radical depravity. Now, often many people have misunderstood the doctrine of of total depravity to mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be, but the the doctrine doesn't teach this. Rather, it teaches that every facet of our humanity is touched by sin's corrupting, polluting influence. Our minds are hostile to God. Our affections are perverted. We love what we shouldn't. Our wills are, are bent away from the good and our consciences have been warped. Sometimes they accuse us, sometimes they defend us, according to the book of Romans. And so we've become blinded by sin. And this blindness has obscured the the idea of God as the highest good, uh, as the one in whom our souls can find rest. Instead of feasting upon God's life in Christ, we satiate our appetites for money, sex and power. These base instincts have become the guiding impulses of our lives, and the results of this have been devastating. But this study has been all too brief. You know, we've looked at sin's privation and sin's domination. I think it would be good to end on a positive note uh, as we look at justification and liberation. Because this refers to the remedy of sin provided by God in Christ. 
And it's only as we look at this remedy that we understand fully the nature of the problem. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4 gives us a nice summary of the solution that God has provided for sin. And I'm going to read the passage out in full. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so what it took for God to deal with sin was a twofold action. Uh, or the double grace, uh, as the theologians like Calvin called it. And the first head of this double grace involves the removal of our legal culpability for sin. And the removal of this legal culpability took nothing less than the death of God incarnate. It took the Son of God humbling himself, taking on the nature of a servant, and become obedient to the point of the most heinous and cruel death. That's what it took to deal with our legal culpability. But the second head, or the second aspect of the double grace, involves dealing with the pollution of sin. If the first action dealt with the legal guilt of sin, the second one deals with the corruption of it. And that involves the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Because Romans 8, 1 through 4 tells us that God not only sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh of Christ, but he has freed us from the dominating power of sin through the dwelling, indwelling life of the spirit, the law of the spirit of life. And so where there is lawlessness, the indwelling vitality of the Spirit brings about a way of life that fulfills this righteous requirement of the law, this requirement which states love God, love your neighbour. It deals with the privation of sin. It brings life where there was death. It brings newness where there was corruption. It brings right walking where there was trespass and transgression. Now, this has been all too brief, uh, and I think it would help to make two brief points that we can take away by way of application. Uh, firstly, note that if it took such a great act on behalf of us on the part of God to deal with sin, then it would be folly to deal with sin trivially. Uh, note, I think, that it is often those who seem most concerned with lives of holiness who have actually the shallowest understandings of sin. The Pharisees, you see, they were some of the most rigorously pious people in all of Israel. They believed in the inspiration of Scripture. They believed that all of life should be normed by Scripture. And they had a hope that once the people of Israel got their doctrine right and got their lives in line with God's law and dealt with sin, that God would bring about the end and he would save and restore the people of Israel. And so they pursued holiness with the most radical and exacting deal, uh, zeal. But their problem 
was not that uh, they were taking sin too seriously. The problem was that they weren't taking sin seriously enough. Jesus said as much in Matthew 23, 25. He says, you're only cleaning the outside of the cup. You're all dirty on the inside. You see, they thought sin could be dealt with through techniques, through lives of radical obedience, through implementing the correct behaviours, the required prayers, the study of scripture, all these techniques they had advanced to deal with the sin problem. But sin cannot be managed out of existence. Its presence leaves us completely at the mercy of God. And the hope that God unites us to the the death of Christ by the power of his spirit that we might experience once more the life of God. So, So a teaching like this should cause us to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God and run from this confidence in techniques. The second application is this. If sin is universal in its extent and in its depth, then we shouldn't be surprised when we find sin lurking in our own close quarters. Often, you see, we betray a hopelessly naive and shallow understanding of sin when we react with shock and disbelief when we receive reports of ministerial abuse within our walls. And there's some who who just cannot countenance the fact that someone who was great with a a reputation for godliness uh, could fall. You just need to look at some of the fallout from Ravi Zacharias, the great Christian apologist. Um, It's now dawning on many that Ravi Zacharias was far from a great man, but that he was really a, a serial sexual predator. And there's lots of people online saying, no, 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 we can't believe this. You know, uh, you know, it must have he must have been the victim of a scam or uh, people are telling lies about them. Despite the mounting evidence, they, they refuse to believe. And I think the problem here is that they carry around with them a shallow doctrine of sin, a shallow understanding of it. And they presume that everyone within the church is basically good. That everyone they meet in the church is basically a nice guy. But it's only when I think that we understand the reality of sin, the presence of sin, the power of sin. It's only when we understand this that we'll become as wise as serpents while innocent as doves. And this disposition, this mindset... Adopting this, and only in adopting this mindset, will we be adequately prepared to confront the reality of evil in our own communities, and in so doing, protect the vulnerable. May God grant us all wisdom, humility and penitence as we ponder these things prayerfully. Thank you for your time. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favourite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to birkheadfreechurch.org.